In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And this week, we're going into the topic very closely of obedience. And brought here, Dr. Robert Haddad. Welcome back to the Catholic Toolbox. Thank you very much, George. I'm very honored to always appear on your show and to present and um, and I want to just congratulate you on this great work. Um, yes. You live out your baptism, you live out your confirmation um, in, in this manner during very difficult times in the church and in the world. So well done. Congratulations. Again. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, you seem to be making an appearance pretty often on the show. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I tell you how important I consider this show. I'm under the weather at the moment. Um, I, when I told my wife I'm about to record a program, he, she said, uh, why is he insisting on this? And I said, no, I'm insisting on it. Um, and she said, you're mad. And I said, no, it's Churchillian. And I like Churchill. We don't surrender in the face of the odds. We persevere. <laughs> so at the moment, well, my family and I are watching the episodes of The Crown, which came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there we've got authority there, kings and queens, etc. <laughs> hopefully, I don't get into too much trouble here, Robert. You know, I have a hot chocolate waiting for me, you know, after this episode. <laughs> well, thanks for inspiring me. I'll go afterwards as well to make one. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay, let's, let's aim towards that. But first, I want to know about obedience. Um, it, often you meet, I mean, I'm inspired to do this topic because often you meet people, you've met people as well who talk about obedience as if it's a blind obedience towards church hierarchy. Let's, we're going straight into the topic of church hierarchy. Where does, where does the line of obedience um, end? Where, where do we draw the line in terms of obedience? Uh, well, let's obedience take us back to the very beginning. Yeah. What was the original sin? It was disobedience. Yeah. There we have the legitimate authority, God, pronouncing a, uh, a positive law, that is a law that he has made from his own will, commanding the first, our first parents, Adam and Eve, to eat of all the trees in the garden except one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From, and then there was a warning attached to uh, this. He, if you eat this fruit or even touch it, you'll die the death. So we have this command from God 
Uh, there was nothing wrong with the tree. There was nothing wrong with the fruit. It was delightful. It was beautiful. But we simply have the Lord God making a law and as creatures, we are obliged to obey. It is um, not, not to be questioned in that case. It's not blind obedience. Right. The reality is that God is all wise, infinitely wise, etc. He's not going to ask us or command us to do something that will harm us. So the original sin was disobedience. So this human struggle in all the millennia since those days has been to restore obedience to God. Uh, and whether that was through Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and Shem, Abraham, right through to Moses, the prophets, etc., and now the church, obedience is essential as part of the God's plan of restoration in opposition to the original sin of disobedience. So prima facie, that is at first instance, we are obliged to obey legitimate authority, whether it be God himself, the state which has authority from God, and now the church which obviously has authority from Jesus Christ. Okay. And let's now zoom in specifically to church authority. Now we know, we, we know at least in many other episodes, we've spoken about the apostolic authority given by our Lord to the church, which is the Pope and the bishops who are the um, uh, successors of the apostles. And they have that legitimate apostolic authority in terms of exercising the magisterium, which is their teaching office. And when mm. they exercise that, the church speaks infallibly in matters of faith and morals. But what's not infallible is discipline, is church discipline and church administration and church politics. So this is where the topic of discussion came to many people I speak to, many people who, who argue that, you know, there's a certain limit in how much we can obey church authority. But obviously, matters of faith and morals are infallible. We have to give a religious assent to them, as Lumen Gentium uh, speaks. But what about those things such as church discipline, let's say um, mandates from the Pope, uh, many other things. I mean, you have arguments from the Society of St. Pius X, I mean, that I've actually read into, and many arguments from many other theologians in the church who, who argue in this area that, you know, th there's a certain extent of obedience that applies. You know, let's say if, if proper authority is not being used or uh, correctly, but, but enlighten us, because there's a lot of uh, gray area around this, uh, Dr. Robert. Well, George, there definitely is gray area. There always is a starting point is that, oh, here's the word again, or the words again, prima facie. First instance, we are obliged to obey the commands, the dictates, the instructions, excuse me, of legitimate authority. Okay? And of course, that includes the teaching office. It also includes the prudential office, the governing of, in different areas. Um, there is, though, there's no room for faithful Catholics to dissent on magisterial teaching, okay? To the, the, um, the apostolic tradition, the pronouncements, dogmatic, doctrinal of the Pope and the councils of the church, uh, the ordinary magisterium, the teaching office that's consistent over the centuries. There's no room for dissent there. Of course, there are many dissenters in the last half century or more, sad to say. 
and they're legion at the moment. And they're so legion, it seems like they're almost uh, normative. Um, but in other areas, um, yes, we, don't ex we should not be exercising a blind obedience. We can uh, judge the commands of legitimate authority um, prudentially. So throughout the history of the church, there have been many decisions made by legitimate authorities, which were detrimental to the welfare of the faithful, the church overall. And then the examples are legion. Um, but the presumption is that we do obey. If we, according to our informed Catholic conscience, feel the need to disobey or to disregard, then we'll be judged according to our conscience by God. Second Vatican Council makes that very clear. There's, um, there's this document by the Australian bishops in 1974 thereabouts. We preach Jesus Christ crucified. I don't have it anymore in my library, but I remember reading it. And there's a section there very clear that, you know, there are certain aspects of the Second Vatican Council. Catholics can have reservations over. Um, and, but in the end, it's said that we're all judged according to our conscience. Um, and faithful Catholics would normally have good reasons to question automatic obedience in those circumstances. Um, we have so many cases of it. There's one just from last year, Traditionis Custodius, Custodus. You know, the Pope, Pope Francis has issued a motu proprio regarding the celebration of the um, 1962 Mass, the Mass according to the 1962 Missal. Um, in those circumstances, irrespective of our attachment to the beautiful liturgy, we are obliged to obey the Pope in those circumstances. Uh, see what wiggle room he's given us, operate within that. Um, of course, one can say that looking at it, the modo proprio will do harm to the church, perhaps. Some people could come to that conclusion. But in the end, we are obliged to obey and still celebrate the old mass in the, in the conditions that he lays out in that document and petition the Pope now or future Pope uh, to perhaps modify that decision. I mean, see, this is the interesting area where people say that decisions in the church shouldn't be used against the, the good of the faithful. <laughs> Uh, against Excuse the me. spiritual good of the faithful. Yeah. And, and, and if people again, perceive it to be a threat to the good of the faithful, then can, can they not exercise uh, the, the state of emergency? I mean, that's... Uh, that's well, I think that so. I mean, look what's happening in Germany. The synodal way in Germany. Yeah. The legitimate authority there, all the bishops, religious heads of, of religious orders, um, many other church bureaucrats, etc. They're taking the German church or the church in Germany down a path of uh, a very dangerous path, a path that in my opinion will lead, will accelerate the decline and auto demolition of the church in Germany. It's basically a, a, a process whereby these people have decided to tear up the traditional moral teachings of the church in all sorts of areas. Now, in those circumstances, what do you do? I do not have a problem myself or good Catholics looking at those decisions and saying, no, 
I will not follow this. This is detrimental. This is against the apostolic tradition. This is against scripture. This is, to be frank, in many cases, heretical, and I will not obey. And in, in, in those circumstances, I'm very happy to be judged one-on-one -on -one in my particular judgment one day by Jesus Christ, according to my informed Catholic conscience. Uh, that's a clear case operating today. Um, and as I said, throughout the history of the church, there have been many others, and I presume in the future, many more. Could we, I mean, in the case of Traditionis Custodis, there are many people who do argue that the, the survey wasn't done correctly, or that they, they parallel this to the synodal way in Germany and say, well, because it wasn't done properly, it's de we delegitimize it, and we say, well, we can sort of bypass this, or we can ignore it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I've heard those arguments. Yeah, I have too. And those, those points or those claims are a matter of fact, okay? Um, and if the facts point to that, then Catholics can certainly raise uh, flash red lights and raise alarm bells. Nevertheless, I think the bottom line is that, yeah, make your protest heard about whether the process was um, fully in accord with uh, openness and full disclosure and um, etc. But I would not promote and I would not encourage anyone to outrightly defy that moto program. Yep. Yep. I mean, because there are many cases where things aren't legitimate, but let's go into the theology then of, we're not talking about uh, the, the, the magisterial teaching of the church that needs to be given religious assent. Otherwise one falls into heresy or apostasy. But, but this, this disciplinary and canonical juridical um, scope that the church has over us to, to, to impose things, what's the theological basis for this given by our Lord? Is it simply the kingly authority that he bestowed upon the church? And, and well, what's the good that God instituted it for? It is part of the kingly authority. It relates to the keys, the exercise of the keys that we read about in Matthew 16, verses 18 onwards, and Matthew 18, etc. So this authority comes from Jesus Christ. And that's its basis. It's, it's recorded in Scripture. We know that to be the case. And so, therefore, we are obliged to obey. But, again, one can observe whether such directions or instructions in the medium to long term have a beneficial uh, a beneficial for the life of the church in Catholics and Catholic Christians etc and if we can see that they are not then we can raise our concerns I mean let's face it where have we gone since the mid 60s uh, with respect to the life the, the healthy life of the church I mean just in Australia alone we've declined from 56 to 50 to 60 percent of you know, um, mass attendance rates to now less than 10. We've had dissent um, as the norm against Catholic teaching in seminaries, in universities, in schools, um, in parishes. Um, and we've reaped, we've reaped the destructive consequences of all that. And some people can ask, some people can say, well, look, these are all decisions that were made by legitimate authority and you're obliged to obey but when we survey the field we see devastation 
you know, someone's got to draw the line somewhere and say, hey, um, you know, like for example, back in 1968, when we had Humano Vitae come up, right, there was a, that is a dot, dot teaching uh, by Pope Paul VI in line with the magisterium of the church since the first century. Okay, but then we had formal dissent. So we had the Canadian bishops. Yes, I think it was the Winnipeg. Ontario statement in 1968, something to that effect. Winnipeg statement. Yeah, the Winnipeg. Defied a humano vitae. Uh, we had Kaurana, Father Kaurana, the Jesuit, a superstar, a very famous theologian in his day, openly defying it as well. So what do you do then as a faithful Catholic? You have to dissent from the dissenters. Uh, you have to say no, and you have to be faithful to the magisterium. Uh, they're clear examples of abuse of power that needs to be resisted by the faith. Okay, let's hone in on church, legitimate church leadership in canonical matters, which threaten the good of the faithful. Like for instance, each person living the census fidelium, the everyday living out of our faith, will give answer to God for, you know, things that he could have done in resisting or taking up. We all want to become saints to get to heaven. Um, and so what we want to try and do is, is look at, let's say, a scenario. Um, let's say the synodal way. Let's take that as an example. In Germany, if legitimate church authority decrees something, which, uh, which isn't heretical, but we reason through our experience uh, uh, on a practical level, we'll undermine the faith. We have the evidence to do it as lay people with the freedom as lay people. We estimate this. We see the ex lived experience of this. We petition the church authority once, twice, three times, four times. We exhaust all possible means in our conscience. And there's, let's say there's, there's regulation, let's say they decree certain things such as um, you must put a Buddha on, on, on every altar, you know, silly things. Which has happened on one occasion. Exactly. And that's legitimate church authority, uh, binding the faithful using the power of the keys. Uh, we've reasoned, we've petitioned, we've exhausted every possible means in our conscience to reason with them because out of respect for church authority and where do we draw the line do we do we say hey look we've done everything possible let's just disobey to obey christ we, we, we're trying to be obedient but this is this is going to threaten the faith and possibly bring us to damnation you know where do we draw a line in a scenario of that sort well, I think in your example, it's quite clear. Um, you know, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And that includes even legitimate church authority. Yeah. If you have a, a decree from a legitimate authority saying you can put a Buddha on each uh, altar of a Catholic church, and obviously you are obliged to resist. This doesn't make you a schismatic, by the way. Some people might say that. It makes you resistance, resistance against legitimate authority in the same way St. Paul resisted St. Peter to his face. Now, St. Peter knew the will of Christ with respect to Gentiles 
and their admission into the church, and that they did not need to anymore uh, be circumcised, etc., etc. Um, yet he went against that, and St. Paul rebuked him for that. And of course, St. Peter was the first pope, St. Paul was a, a bishop, itinerant preaching bishop, an apostle as well, and he defied the legitimate authority. Because St. Peter in those circumstances was clearly wrong and going against what he knew was the will of Christ with respect to associating with a Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. So yes, there is a legitimate, uh, there is a time where we do draw the line. There is an obligation to say no. There is an obligation to resist, but there's also an obligation to do that with reverence, respect. Yeah. Um, and we can easily fall into the trap, perhaps I have as well over the time, uh, because we're so passionate. We love God. We love Jesus Christ. We love his church. We love its teaching. That when we see dissent or decisions made that are harming the church, we're angry. And we express that anger. Um, and we say all sorts of things about legitimate authority, whoever that might be. Uh, we need to be careful. Uh, yes, we can defy St. Peter to his face like St. Paul did. But we must do that with reverence. Gentleness is reverence, as St. Peter said, 1 Peter 3.15. You know, we have to give a reasoned explanation for why we're taking this position. Do it with gentleness and reverence. Um, so that's, I think, it's clear. It's definitely clear that we can resist in obvious cases where decisions are made that are contrary to the benefit of the church and the faith. And so someone takes that course of action the case in Germany, or in the case of uh, St. Mary MacKillop, who, um, we'll talk a little bit about that, they could still be in good conscience. They might have made a practical discernment mistake, but as long as they exhausted every possible means, did it with reverence, they could still be in good conscience. Well, that bishop in that, in that story, I think his name yeah. was Bishop Shield, South Australia. Um, he would admit later on that he'd been deceived about St. Mary MacKillop. It was the action of legitimate authority, um, but it was based on perhaps misinformation provided to him. Mary MacKillop, as far as I'm aware, did not publicly defy the bishop in those circumstances. She would have resisted in a way that was respectful, dignified and obedient. And eventually she was justified. In the same way you have in the story of St. Joan of Arc, another great saint from the early 15th century, she was excommunicated. But there, of course, that was an abuse of authority. But she had to stand firm in her, in her Catholic conscience, the yes, that she did see visions, that she was given instructions, and she could not deny them. At one point in weakness, she did, but then she recanted um, that, that decision. Um, and she died as an excommunicate, okay? But she died faithful to what she knew with certainty was the truth with respect to the apparitions and her mission. And that was another case of a Catholic in resistance against legitimate authority who was abusing that authority. Exactly. And uh, we can look at the case of, who was it? Uh, St. Athanasius himself. In the first ecumenical council in Nicaea, who was excommunicated, 
for I mean, this was for a theological matter, not a not, not any canonical matters. Um, it was excommunicated, but in those cases, let's look through them. Did they incur excommunication legitimately if the authority was abused? If a bishop morally, uh, legally, yes. yes, morally, no. Um, now, just trying to remember the particulars about this case of Saint Athanasius. Excommunication was one thing. Deposition was the other. He was deposed as Bishop of Alexandria on five occasions. Yeah. And he was, throughout his epic resistance against Arianism, he stood firm heroically for over five decades to support the decree of, of the Council of Nicaea, AD 325. He stood firm on that. Despite the efforts of the Arians and the semi-Arians and the Macedonians and all other um, groups or subgroups that denied the divinity of Christ and then gathered bishops in councils and they issued their own version of creeds that watered down or contradicted the first council of Nicaea and they were hundreds of bishops, more bishops than attended at uh, Nicaea. These were robber councils. And St. Athanasius defied those robber councils to his credit because he was obedient to the legitimate council of the fathers who gathered at Nicaea in AD 325. And we have to be the same. Um, the synodal way in Germany is like a robber council acting beyond its authority to decree doctrinal changes. It has no authority to do that. Even the Pope has no authority from Christ to change the apostolic tradition, to contradict scripture, to change church teaching. The Pope is the servant of the magisterial teacher of the apostolic tradition, the original paradusus or the tradition handed down by Christ. He cannot contradict it. His authority is limited. Um, and if he were in any sad circumstance, to contradict church teaching, um, we are obliged to respectfully resist. So say, for example, you've got a Pope on an airplane who's interviewed and he's asked tricky questions. He might not be the smartest Pope, he's still Pope, we still have to reverence, respect him, but he might say something which could contradict what the church has taught on humanae vitae or hell or whatever. In those circumstances, you're not obliged to um, uh, to submit to those statements. Ordinary Catholics who don't know better might say and cheer, hey, the Pope has now changed humanae vitae or abolished hell, yeah. But no, he has no authority. And we clearly have to respectfully resist in those circumstances and maintain church teaching as found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and throughout history. An ordinary magisterium. I mean, it's uh, well put, indefinitely. And uh, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the state now. Let's go into the state. Why does the state receive authority from God? Because all authority comes from God. If I give you a couple of quotes here, I've got Romans thirteen one to seven. Now, remember, in the in this time when Saint Paul wrote to the Romans, who was the legitimate authority? the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, who was an idol, 
who was revered as a son of Jupiter, as a god. And there was the emperor cult, and Roman citizens were obliged to pay divine honours to the emperor cult. So you'd think on that basis, um, Jesus Christ, the church, St Paul would say, don't obey, just ignore the Roman emperor. All right? But that's not what scripture says. We see Romans 13, 1 to 7, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. They're the Roman governors. For there is no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And that's one. I've got Titus 3, 1 to 2, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 15, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, all outline the obligation of Christians to obey and even pray for the legitimate state authorities. But again, we have to draw the line. I studied St. Justin Martyr back in 2003, 4, 5, 6. I did the thesis and he was very particular to put forward to the Roman emperors that Christians were obedient. They were good citizens. They were good subjects. They are obedient to the emperor despite all the calumnies, but they drew the line on giving the emperor divine honours, okay? Because that's where they go beyond their authority and they demand something that's not legitimate at all. So, yeah, I mean, this was a debate that came up last year about the COVID mandate. A lot of good Catholics, very good Catholics, heroic Catholics, were concerned about the mandate, whether, you know, they, they've been vaccinated before for other reasons. But they objected to being vaccinated with the COVID vaccine, one, because it was experimental, two, because there were known serious side effects, um, etc. cetera. Uh, but they, um, in my debates or conversations with people, I had to make it clear that we're mandated by the government to do many things we don't like. Yeah. Pay taxes, observe uh, speed limits, um, pay rates, uh, drive on the uh, on the left side of the road, etc., etc., etc. So governments mandate all the time for the common good, for public order and the common good. So we just can't willy-nilly defy all authority and expect to be consider ourselves good Christians because that will cause chaos in society. Also, it will defame the name of Christians even more than it's been defamed in recent decades. Um, but of course, there are clear cases where we can resist in good conscience. And I don't question the good conscience of those Catholics who resisted the COVID vaccine. And likewise, I ask for the same with respect to myself, who took it because I needed to preserve my vocation, my job as a Catholic educator. And I wasn't prepared to surrender. I mean, if I'd been received vaccines to go overseas World Youth Day to Panama in 2017, 2019, I was got four injections to do something for work. I saw it as not a problem morally to get vaccines, um, you know, to, in order to preserve my job. Um, and so I don't consider my job just a normal job. Um, but anyway, that's basically, it is of a divine um, institution or authority to obey legitimate state authority. The word for authority in scripture is exousia. Um, and it's everywhere in scripture. 
And if we didn't obey, obey state authority, we'd be guilty of chaos, acting against the public good, public order, common good, etc. Let's go into three practical tools for those specifically with church authority who struggle, let's say maybe those in Germany, especially those in Germany, those who uh, maybe have local leadership may, may not be living up to uh, the gospel and they want to be faithful, but again, they don't want to compromise. They don't want to compromise the, um, their sainthood and, and being good conscience before our Lord on the judgment. Um, in, in preserving the faith and, and saving souls. I mean, because that comes first. Um, what's your advice? What are some three practical tools that we can take to heart? So we can have a balanced approach where, you know, where we, we are obedient, we do it in a charitable fashion, but really where we draw the line in extreme circumstances. Well, firstly, I look at it as a three-step approach. Firstly, we use our own judgment, informed Catholic conscience, and judgment to determine whether something that's been decreed or ordered or taught is good for the life of the church, is orthodox, etc. If we're clear in our own mind that it is not, then we are morally obliged not to submit, but to resist respectfully. That's point one. If we're unsure, and sometimes it can be quite torturous, the uncertainty, then we should have access to a good spiritual director and bind ourselves to the decision of that spiritual director. This is a case particularly for people who are um, scrupulous in one way or another. Okay. Um, so that's, I had a third, but it slipped my mind now. So when you're certain, you're, you're obliged to resist respectful. If you're uncertain, if you're in this gray zone, seek good advice um and yes that's that's two at least so the third will come back to my mind in a moment i hope so i mean uh, it's just absolutely tremendous uh uh wisdom that you have there that, that we have to go to a spiritual director and and really bind ourselves to the decision of that spiritual director um and the third one if i could say there you go, it's come back. We just have to be steadfast in the faith and in prayer and in good example and not to become despondent. I think in these perilous times, yeah. there's a great temptation, which I feel often, to become despondent. Yeah, yeah that is the problem. dissent, chaos is the norm in church and state. Where is the good? Where is the certainty? Where is orthodoxy prevailing? Where is morality prevailing in society? You don't see much of it. So we can be tempted to despair. And that's why we need, and here's another practical example, associate, keep associating with good like-minded Catholics. And um, as they say, you know, the famous British statement that you see everywhere, you know, uh, stay calm, keep calm and carry on. Right? <laughs> and that's the same for us. The storm will pass. When I came to the faith as a young adult, serious practice of the faith in the mid to late 80s, things were very, very bleak in Australia. But fortunately, I associated with very good Catholics who you know, helped build my knowledge, built my prayer life, built my sacramental life, and I had a lot of camaraderie with. 
And that's another point we have to build on. Just keep associating with good, like-minded Catholics. The storm will pass. As the storm passed for St. Athanasius, can imagine when emperors came after him and he was deposed five times and he was in the desert in exile. One famous episode, which is humorous in the time of the Emperor Valens, who was a semi-Arian, and he sent soldiers in pursuit of St. Athanasius to arrest him, hunt him down and arrest him. And St. Athanasius is fleeing down the Nile River in a, a small boat. He had a couple of men helping him, rowing. And he could see the soldiers of the Emperor Valens catching up with him. So he said to his crew, turn around and row in the direction of the soldiers. They looked at each other thinking, well, is he mad or something? So as he's approaching now the soldiers, the soldiers cried out and they said, have you seen Athanasius? And Athanasius responded and said, yes, a few moments ago, he was heading in that direction. Okay. <laughs> so, so Athanasius kept going that way and the soldiers kept going that way. Imagine how dark those days were for him. Absolutely. He died in 373, AD 373. He didn't see the final victory that came through the First Council of Constantinople in AD 381. But without a doubt, his resistance for 48 years was epic and pivotal. And at a time when the number of Orthodox Catholic bishops who believed in the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, could be numbered on less than two hands. Yep. Uh, he maintained the faith in the midst of the storm. Same with us. But we can't do it by ourselves. So keep praying, keep associating with good Catholics, and have a spiritual director. They're the three points. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Robert, for all your wisdom. Thank you for being with me on the Catholic Toolbox. Thank you, and God bless. And keep up the good fight. Thank you. Till next week, if you want to tune in with us, go to thecatholictoolboxshow.com. Until then, God bless, take care, and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today live on The Voice of Charity.